0: In today's study, Dr. Misler completes his teaching on the book of 2 Kings, chapters 1 through 3.
1: Verse 14, He took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters, and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elisha went over. In other words, the cross, he crossing back the Jordan just the same way he came. Using the same mantle, splitting. Now, it's not the mantle that's splitting the waters. Don't make a fetish of it. Don't think there's some magical thing about his mantle. That's not the point. The power is not in the robe or in Elijah. It's the power of God that's doing it in both cases. And it's important that we not lose sight of that. The same thing, if you remember when he started the Ark of the Covenant, when the Philistines took it and so on. It's not some kind of a fetish or... It, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's the power of God that's irrelevant, not, not the particular artifact that's being used here. And, uh, like that, where he says, where is the Lord God of Elijah? That's the question for today. You know, where is, where is the living God today? It's amazing where people look to find God and, um, rather than look to the living God of the Bible, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll talk about the legend about this mantle before we finish. Let's move on. When the sons of the prophets, which were to view at Jericho, saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. So they've been watching what's going on. They said unto him, Behold now, there be with thy servants fifty strong men. Let them go, we pray thee, and seek thy master. They don't realize, somehow, that he's gone off to be with God. They sort of visualize, remember like Obadiah did a few chapters ago. Uh, God took him, but he could. where is he dropping him? Where, where, they're, going, they're going to go search. Where is he now? They saw him take up in this whirlwind, but uh, where is he? So he said, uh, "He said, We pray thee, Seek thy master. Lest peradventure the Spirit of the Lord hath taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or in some valley. And uh first Elijah says, He, he shall not sin. Come on. No, no, we're not going to do that. And uh, But they urged him until he was ashamed. He said sin. He gave up. In other words, they insist upon ser- sending a search party. And Elijah's telling. It's futile. Because Elijah, uh, Elisha knows what's happened. These guys somehow don't really get it. They're, they want to send out a search party. So finally, he just, he just keeps the peace. Okay, if you're going to go, go. He knows it's a waste of time. They sent therefore fifty men, and they saw three days, but found them not. And when they came again to him, for he tarried at Jericho, he said to them, Did I not say unto you, Go not? In other words, he try, I tried to tell you. And uh, Okay. Uh, <clears throat> verse 19. The men of the city said unto Elisha, Behold, I pray the situation of the city is pleasant as my Lord seeth. But the water is not and the ground barren. This is the, this is the area of Jericho there, and the waters are typically brackish, but there is a well that they depend upon that's got good water. And he said, and he said, bring me a new cruise. And they put salt therein. Now salt is normally what you don't want to put into your drinking water, right? But Elisha said, put the salt in the cruise and they brought it to him. And he went forth unto the spring of the waters and cast the salt in there and said, Thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters. There shall not be from thence any more death or barren land. So the waters were healed unto this day, according to the saying of Elisha, which he spake. And again, it's a miracle because the salt isn't what the water needed. It was just a demonstration that God was healing the waters. Uh, the, uh, the with these leading men coming to him, it gave him an opportunity. What he's trying to get across, bear in mind, see the northern kingdom is an idolatry. And item after item after item, trying to get across that God is real, God is alive, God cares. What's interesting about this is the parallelism because uh, the, this physical situation uh, is parallel to the situation of the nation because they had spiritually polluting influences of Baal worship throughout the entire nation and uh, the, 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 the waters were polluted too, just as their worship is polluted, and God can heal both if they'll let them they'll let him. So uh, so again this is a teaching exercise, but they don't learn. One of the questions you can ask yourselves, we can get into a whole side issue here, remember it rings familiar to you from Luke fourteen and Matthew five, salt is good, but if the salt have lost its savour, wherein shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor yet for a dunghill. Men cast it out. He that hath ears, let him hear. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus says, and uh, you are to be the mechanism for God's healing the earth too. Now, the next incident that comes here is probably one of the most criticized incidents in the Scriptures, and it's pointed out by, with glee by the enemies of, of the Word of God, who who feel that there's a these poor little children are going to get killed. Well, let's understand what we're getting into here. It's, it, there's a lot of translational issues that have confused many, many people. Um, As he went up from thence unto Bethel, and he was going up by the way, there came forth little children out of the city and mocked him, and said unto him, "Go up, thou bald head! Go up, thou bald head!" And what's all to be going to happen is there's going to be uh, 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 these—they're they're going to get torn to pieces. A lot of people get upset by these little children, isn't it not it a little British? Well, see, part of the problem, he's going up to Bethel. Let's understand Bethel. It means house of God, but this isn't the Bethel that you're thinking of. This is the one uh, that uh, is uh, uh, has not lived up to its name. It's uh, this is where one of the golden calves were placed by Jeroboam, and uh, this is where people uh, would come to worship that couldn't, you know, that, that instead of going down to the temple in Jerusalem. And there's also a school for the false prophets at Bethel. And uh, obviously, an imitation. The main point is they are godless, and so um, there's no, uh, the, the, these these uh, people had no training at home, no no discipline. The word Bethel is a misnomer; it means the house of God, not here. And it's sort of like Los Angeles, which means the angels, but there's uh, anyone it means the city of angels, but uh, there's anything but angels down there. But I won't get into that. You, you all saw the Academy Awards. Uh, we move on. Um, this epithet, by the way, bald head, uh is really just a term of scorn. Elisha was fairly young, uh, and also he probably had his head covered anyway, so it's not that he had, he literally is bald, but after that that's point one or the other. The real key here is this word little translated little children. That's what causes so much misunderstanding. The word is Na'ar in the Hebrew. It's used of Isaac when he was twenty eight years old, it's used of Joseph when he was thirty nine. Uh, and the Sodomites that attacked the home at Lot were used the same word there. They're, it really means young men. And you'll find it all through the Scripture. Samuel came to anoint uh, the, the sons of Jesse. D- David, the youngest, wasn't even among them. And the same word, are these all thy children, he says to Jesse. Same word, Naar, in the Second Kings 2, verse 23. Solomon, in 1 Kings 3, and Jeremiah, in 4, Jeremiah chapter 1, uh, are called Naar. Uh, these are young people in the singular, in their cases. But the point is, also Rehoboam. remember when Rehoboam sought the counsel of his young advisors? The word is an R. So don't think they're uh, little children is a misleading. They're not children, they're accountable moral people. They're just they're young, but they're accountable. And uh, you got young fellows. They were students of the false prophets. They were a gang that mocked and ridiculed Elisha. And they said, go up, bald head, what they mean by go up, bald head, what they challenge you would do it Elijah did. Go up to heaven, let's see you let you do that. And why don't you take off like Elijah did is what they're really saying. So they're jeering in the slang of the day. And, uh, so if, if Elijah was a great prophet of the Lord, he should go up to heaven like Elijah reportedly had done. So, incidentally, it's interesting. They were ridiculing the truth in scripture that God will take a people out of this world. That's what he did to Elijah. That's what they're challenging, jeeringly him. And that's, of course, what's coming. So, Forthcoming, and we should remember this in in Second uh, Peter, uh, yeah, Second Peter chapter three. Peter warns us. Says, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lessons, saying, "Where is the promise of his coming?" For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So uh, th- there's going to be at the last days people who will ridicule the idea that God that uh, that uh, God is going to take out a people for His name. But let's get to verse 24. He uh, turned back and looked on them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. Now, it's one thing to curse somebody. You're curs- cursing somebody in the name of the Lord with His authority. That's pretty scary. And guess what happened? This is the way you bear hecklers. There came forth two she-bears out of the wood and tore forty and two children of them. That's a bunch. And uh, it's uh, it's uh, interesting. There apparently were fifty of them originally, I think. And there's 42 that are killed. Uh, the, the fact that there's so many of those implies that this was an organized mass demonstration. It wasn't spontaneous. But in any case, um, eight of them somehow survive. I think that's interesting because that's how many God saved in Noah's day. But um, anyway, Elijah went from thence to Mount Carmel. And from thence he returned to Samaria, which is the capital of the northern kingdom. Now, before I go on, uh, this seems this is probably a good place to share with you a legend This is not in the scripture. I'm not suggesting it's true. It's simply colorful. And I'll share with you. When you get to John chapter 1, you're confronted very early in that chapter with John the Baptist. And you discover that John the Baptist is preaching where? Anyone know? Bethabara. In the Jordan, it's the place where Joshua crossed over. And later on, he'll say, if God can raise up from these stones, sons of Abraham. The stones are probably the stones that were placed there by Joshua and they crossed over. But the point is, he is in essentially Jericho, right there by the Jordan. It's about 20 miles to Jerusalem. If you're renting a car, it's still a little, it's a drag. It's quite a, it's quite a ways to go because it's a rough country. There were so many people going to see John the Baptist that the temple sent an inquiry team to find out what's going on. Are you Are you the Messiah? No, I'm not. Are you that prophet, the one Moses talked about? No. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not. See, they, they, they know something's up because there's crowds from Jerusalem attending the speeches of John the Baptist at the Jordan. Now, one of the things that uh, may clarify a little bit of the mystery, what's the appeal? John the Baptist was not preaching a market-researched, user-friendly sermon. He was laying it on them. There is a legend I want to share with you because it's kind of colorful. When Elijah gets caught up, his mantle drops, and Elisha takes it and puts it on, and he uses it all through his ministry. We'll see. The question is, what happens when Elijah finally does die, which he does eventually? What happens to his mantle? We don't know. There is a legend that the mantle is taken and put in the altar of incense. You know, in, in not the not the not the brazen altar outside, in the, in the holy place. Right in front of the Holy of Holies, in front of the veil, there is a uh, a a little stand, little cupboard kind of stand. It's the golden altar, the altar of incense, and apparently has it's sort of like a cupboard too. It's a little, you know, it's a foot and a half square and and maybe thirty inches high. And uh, the 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 legend is that inside there, that's where they put Elisha's mantle. Move ahead to the days of Zechariah, who is serving as a priest, the father of John the Baptist. He is tending the altar of incense. That was his job. When his turn came up, every twenty there's 24 courses, they, turned, they rotated every Shabbat, and he's on duty. And uh, as you all know, the, the, the angel comes and tells him he's going to have a son. And we all have that in the Scripture. What's not in the Scripture, but part of the legend, is that what he was also told to do is take the mantle out of the altar of incense, and he kept it. And 30 years later, when his son grows to be John the Baptist, John the Baptist was wearing the mantle of Elijah. That's the legend. I came across this legend, did not take it seriously. There's a lot of these colorful legends. They're kind of fun, but you want to be cautious. But when we were doing research for our book on the temple and the Ark of the Covenant, I came across an interesting argument by the rabbis. The the argument was intended to deal with the whereabouts of the Ark of the Covenant, but the main point that came out of what they were building the argument on was that that the altar of incense in Herod's temple was the altar of incense from from Solomon's. There's apparently some textual uh, Mishnah or Tsefta or whatever uh, authority for that part of it, which means that if it was in the... if Elijah's mantle was in that uh, little contrivance, it would... It could have been in the second temple and could have been available to Zechariah to take. Now, that doesn't prove this is right, and I'm not suggesting it is right. It's just a colorful legend. But it's interesting for a couple of reasons because it does say in, John, in Luke chapter 1 that he shall go, when it's being announced to Zechariah, he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. And part, part of the legend would suggest that when John the Baptist was, at, was preaching at, at, at the Jordan, he may have been actually, literally wearing the mantle of Elijah. Was he? I don't know. Uh, there is kind of interesting that both the death of Moses and the translation of Elijah are in the region where it is probably the Mount of Transfiguration. We don't know where the Mount of Transfiguration was. There's different theories. One of them is that it's down there in the south. And it's interesting that Moses and Elijah both departed there and make an appearance... In Matthew 17, the Transfiguration. Well, that's enough for conjecture. Let's get back to the Word of God and find out what's really true. Second Kings chapter three is going to deal with. It's, uh, we're going to get, uh, encounter a whole bunch of these miracles of Eli- Elisha, and uh, I want you just a little bit of review here. Elisha was farming when Elijah found him. He was working a rich man's field, plowing with uh, uh, the uh, twelve of twelve pair of oxen, uh, oxen, uh, oxen, a very wealthy man, and Elijah threw his mantle on Elisha. And he, he, uh, burned his farm implements, uh, slaughtered them for offering, burned his bridges, if you will, and, uh, uh, became Elijah's attendant and, and, uh, his, his uh, protege. All through this, um, uh, the years of Elisha, Israel is going to be constantly threatened by powerful Syria. Syria, uh, they're in the northern kingdom, but just north and east of that is Syria, and they're constantly threatened by them. There's going to be lots of interactions there. Um, and uh, Elisha will live all the way to command the anointing of Jehu as the king of Israel. And uh, Jehu will destroy Ahab's family and wipe out Baal worship when he takes charge later. But let's just move right in here. Now, Jeroram, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel and Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned 12 years. And he wrought evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and like his mother. For he put away the image of Baal that his father had made. So he does some things good, but not enough, because it goes on, he says, Nevertheless he cleaved unto the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin and departed not therefrom. So these things that were instituted by Jeroboam right at the beginning are still kept, even though uh, he apparently did destroy this, this particular image of Baal, and that's to his credit, he still doesn't get a clean report card. He's still not good news. He's just not as bad as some of the previous ones. He was the, uh, Jerome was the second son of Ahab and Jezebel and successor to his brother, obviously, who died without children. So, uh, he did get rid of this idol. I think there's, so anyway, the calf, calf the calf worship is continuing. So anyway, uh, verse uh, four, and Mesher the king of Moab. Now, Moab is to the, uh, uh, south east. And they're, they're gonna, since Ahab's died, they're gonna, they're, they're gonna have one of the many uprisings from Moab. So the king, of Mesha was the king of Moab. He's a sheep master rendered to the king of Israel and a hundred thousand lambs and a hundred thousand rams with, wool. this is the tribute. They were paying taxes that they're anxious to get out from under. So they're going to take the opportunity to rebel because they're tired of paying this tribute. It came to pass when Ahab was dead that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. And so they, this obviously, they, they feel they have an opportunity here that, will, uh, uh, of uh, some of this less strong. And then, so King Jerome went out of Samaria at the same time and numbered all of Israel. He's getting ready for war here. And he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. Now that's the that's the king of the the southern kingdom, saying, "The king of Moab hath rebelled against me. Wilt thou go with me against Moab to battle?" And he said, "I will go. I, I am as thou art. My people as thy people, and my horses as thy horses." So Jehoshaphat makes a makes a does an impulse here. It's too bad he didn't go to the Lord first. That would do, be to his credit. But uh, nevertheless, he he agrees to do this. Uh, and he said, "Which way shall we go up?" And so they make league. Both the north and south kingdoms going to go, go against Moab together. So which way shall we go up? And uh, he answered, "The way through the wilderness of Edom." They're going to go down the west bank of the, of the Dead Sea and around the south. They're going to come around the backside. And so the uh, king of Israel went, the king of Judah, and the king of Edom joins them because they're also tributary to to king Judah. And they fetched a compass of seven days' journey, and there was no water for the host and for the cattle at them. So this whole group is going down the south way, but that's that's they're more dependent than ever on on water. The king of Israel said, "Alas, that the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab." But Jehoshaphat said, "Is there not here a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of the Lord by him?" Remember, this is what Jehoshaphat's always doing. Did that earlier? You may recall. And one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, Here is Elisha, the son of Shaphat, which poured water on the hands of Elijah, meaning he served the Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said unto the king of Israel, What have I to do with thee? He's speaking to the northern kingdom here. What have I to do with thee? Get thee to the prophets of thy father and to the prophets of thy mother. See, that's an insult, really. And the king of Israel said unto him, Nay, but the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them unto the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee nor see thee. Boy, you know, Elisha has got the same, you know, chutzpah that Elijah did. But he said, But bring me now a minstrel. And it came to pass that when the minstrel played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. So he's doing that as a form of worship. And he said, Thus saith the Lord, Make this valley full of ditches. This is a prophecy, in effect. For thus saith the Lord, Ye shall not see wind, neither shall ye see rain. Yet that valley shall be filled with water that ye may drink, both ye and your cattle and your beasts. And this is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will deliver the Moabites also into your hand. So this is interesting. God, in spite of the disbelief of the northern kingdom and the fact that they're aligned, here with the Edomites, God still chooses to bless them to show his strength. And and Elisha continues, And he shall smite every fenced city and every choice city, and and shall fell every good tree, and stop the wells of water, and mar every good piece of land with stones. They're going to smite every fenced city. They're going to cut down all the trees so they won't have any fruit. They'll stop the wells of water, and they'll put stones in to keep them from being able to irrigate their fields, or to cultivate their fields. came to pass in the morning, when the meat offering was offered, that, behold, there came water... By the way of Edom and the country was filled with water. Another miracle. Now here's this is just the beginning of it. When all the Moabites heard that the kings were come up to fight against them, they gathered all that were able to put on armor and upward, and stood in the border. And they arose up early in the morning, and the sun shone on the water, and the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. You understand the word. They didn't expect water there, but they saw this reddish reflection and panicked. And they said, "This is blood. The kings are surely slain. They have smitten one another. Now, therefore, Moab to the spoil." So the Moabites see this, what looks to them like red flowing, what looks to like blood, and they assume that this these three allies. Had a squabble among themselves, which is not far fetched. You had Northern Kingdom, Southern Kingdom, they, you know, they have their problems. And then the Edomites in the middle, they assume that somehow they've slaughtered themselves, so they drop their arms and they go in there to take spoil. Bad decision. When they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and smote the Moabites so that they fled before them, but they went forward smiting the Moabites even in their country. And they beat down the cities and every good piece of land, cast every man his stone, and filled it. And they stopped all the wells of water, and they felled all the good trees only. And kir left they the stones thereof, albeit the slingers went about it and smote it. So so they're running cleanup on this whole thing. Um see if I've missed any important... Uh, uh, gems that uh, so they don't have water they got victory and that's really what what Elijah was delivering to them the lord was going to uh, take care of them now when the king of moab now he's in his main in his main uh uh, uh retreat um at uh, Kir Harisheth and uh, they they smote it but they haven't taken it and they don't actually you know completely get it and the king of moab saw that the battle was too sore for him he took with him 700 men that drew swords to break through even to the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he does something really disgusting. Then he took his eldest son that should have reigned in his stead, the heir to the throne, in other words, and he offered him for a burnt offering upon the wall. Now, this is his firstborn son, heir to the throne. Now, it was not the Israelites' intent to annihilate the Moabites. They just wanted to keep their neighbors from rebelling against their sovereignty to keep them under their control. But so offensive was Mesha's act of sacrificing his son that they all retreated and all went home and So Israel really had won the battle even though they had not destroyed Kir or captured Mesha. And uh, so the... Uh, it it says that that, that there was great indignation against Israel that's not quite translated there was great indignation in Israel the Hebrew preposition al here indicates that Judah and Israel were indignant because of this abominable act Now that closes the chapter but what's interesting um, there is a stone that was discovered that is a remarkable archaeological uh, discovery that contains Mesha's own record of this battle and other battles with Israel. And on the stone, the Moabite king claimed to have been delivered from the Israelites by his god Chemosh on this day. So it's true that the Israelites didn't conquer uh, Kir Harisheth, and that's why they're calling it a victory. But the Israelites just drew, but the, actually the real victors were Israel and their allies. But that's not the impression you get from the Moabite stone because it's from the point of view of, of uh, Mesha. One of the, the, uh, one of the, when I was in Egypt, I was startled, um, there are giant monuments celebrating Egypt's victory in 1973 at the Om Kippur War. Now you may recall that Eric Sharon had circled the entire Egyptian army and could have wiped them out, except the United States sent Kissinger in there to blow the whistle, stop, and, and, and uh, that's how they got the Sinai back and so forth. Um, but in Egypt, they've sold that to their people as if they won that battle. And you see these... Mubarak, Mubarak is one of the leaders and uh, present uh, present, and you see these huge. These, and you try to figure what they, they got clobbered in that war, but you see it's all from all in point of view, isn't it? So, uh, okay, that ends the uh, first session, ch- first three chapters of First King, uh, Second Kings, and uh, in the the good news, <laughs> we've got some wild stuff coming in the second session.
0: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Musler, teaching through the book of 2 Kings. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on one 800 khouse one To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.